0: frank ling and i'm charles lee and you're listening to the
1: grok science show
0: coming up on today's program garth sundham will join us he'll talk about brain trust so stay tuned for all of this plus the grokatron 5000 and our world famous question a week coming right up here on the grok's science show Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, the advent and explosion of scientific knowledge makes it difficult to keep up with all the truly salient information. What does science really have to say about the daily features of our lives? And what if we had our own private brain trust to advise us on these issues? Well, joining us today to discuss these issues, is Mr. Garth Sundham. Mr. Sundem is the author of such works as The Geek's Guide to World Domination and Geek Logic. And his latest book, which is called Brain Trust, 93 Top Scientists Reveal Lab-Tested Secrets to Surfing, Dating, Dieting, Gambling, Growing Man-Eating Plants, and More, explores this issue for a general audience. And Mr. Sundham, we're very pleased to have you back again on the Grok Science Show.
1: Thanks for having
0: me. It's really a pleasure. Uh, You've compiled pretty much the range of scientific subjects. I'm wondering how did uh, the idea come about? I
1: I started with the idea that there are a lot of things that I do poorly, Um, but it turns out that for everything that I do poorly, there's someone who's studied it. So I decided this is kind of like an awesome excuse to call these people up and, and figure out how I could live the scientifically perfect life. So I, I talked to a lot of good folks, about 130 in all, and I ended up cutting them down to about 93 for the book.
0: 93 is a bit of an odd number. usually you go with like 100 or 101.
1: Yeah, you know, that 101 thing is, is, is just too done. I mean, why not Why not 93? That, that, that's what I say.
0: Well, it's, it's a great 93 that you've uh, put together. Was it tough? Nobel laureates, MacArthur geniuses, were they all uh, pretty willing to contribute?
1: You know, the, the best way I've found to find people was to ask scientists to sell out their friends So, you know, I talked to, for example, um, George Akerlof, the Nobel economist at Berkeley, and then I asked, you know, who he knew who was just doing fascinating science. And so he would point me to, uh, I talked to Eli Berman down at uh, UCSD and got pointed over to Louis Vaughan at Carnegie Mellon. And um, what was interesting is I found myself getting, like, Stuck in these veins of scientists who knew each other, so I'd spend you know a week talking to behavioral economists before somebody would switch me over to you know social psychologists, and they would switch me over to maybe a biologist eventually. And so the the book actually is pulling a thread through all of these scientists that are themselves somehow connected. It was a really neat way to find people,
0: sort of like tracing a uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon.
1: Totally, I was on Oracle of Bacon the other day. You know, mines the IMDb database to, you know, figure out how close you are to Bacon, and I was I was wishing that that you know the same thing exists existed for science. I wish you could mine the, like the what would it be like the PNAS pubs or you know like PubMed or something to see how all these scientists are connected. It would be fascinating, and I bet I bet they are.
0: (laughs) Well, you know about the air dose number, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you covered pretty much the gamut of science here. I'm wondering, uh, and you start with one by Steven Pinker. Why him?
1: Yeah. Steven Pinker has always been fascinating. I mean, he's one of Britannica's 100 most influential scientists of all time. And I think that his entry is representative of the major fact that I discovered when writing Brain Trust, and that is that you cannot get this stuff from scientific abstracts. I mean, I was talking to, um, for example, Pinker, and he starts telling me how game theory suggests you bribe cops uh, or potentially sleep with coworkers. Not that he recommends doing either of those things, but game theory could help you do it, and you don't see that stuff in scientific abstracts. Or, Or I was talking to... Ian Stewart, the mathematician and puzzler from the UK, and all of a sudden he starts telling me about how his cat
0: can't land
1: on its feet. And he's going to use the principles of rotational mechanics to teach his malfunctioning feline to land on its feet. And, you know, so it seems like every one of in these interviews you know I'd read a couple papers and I would have, you know, obviously some questions. And then I'd get on the phone, and about 10 minutes in, we would digress, and the digression was almost always what I ended up writing about. You have to call these people to get this information. And it turns out that these scientists are, you know, as, as bubbly about their subject as teenagers with a Justin Bieber infatuation. It's, it's fascinating, but it's also these people are completely passionate.
0: Why do you think the uh, digressions or the more passionate things don't make it really into the uh, scientific literature?
1: I think that in many of the cases, science's own lives or, or you know, the, the, the anecdotes that came very organically to them are the ways they got into whatever ended up getting published. So like Stephen Greenspan, the psychologist, I, I talked and he wrote this book, I think it's uh, Annals of Gullibility or something about gullibility, and he told me the story of how his mother had tricked him into getting married, and she she called him up on the phone and said, hey, you know, your great aunt is selling her engagement ring. And, you know, he got off the phone and he realized that all of a sudden his his mother had effectively engaged him to his then-girlfriend, and he thought, wait a minute, how did that happen? And he decided to look more closely at, well, you know, I mean, how it happened, and ended up getting into the science of gullibility. So while scientists' lives don't necessarily make it into their papers, I think that their lives are very frequently the genesis of their papers. It's much easier to write about someone else getting tricked into Marriage than yourself, which is <laughs> maybe I've outed the scientist secrets
0: <laughs> of '93. It's probably hard to pick, but any of that you're you're particularly enamored by.
1: You know, I'm enamored. I I'm enamored by them all. Um, I think some of them are more usable than others, and others are more fascinating than maybe some of the usable ones. Um, on the usability side, I talked to this guy Sachin tanda down at SOC, who found that even if you keep your calories constant, if you condense the hours you eat those calories into eight hours a day instead of the 16 that we usually eat, you will be healthier and lose weight compared to if you eat them over 16 hours. And it's funny, it, it seems like it should be like a calorie should matter, but what matters is a function of mitochondria in your liver. They, you should not ask them to divide while they're working, and if you eat for 16 hours, they have to be working and dividing at the same time, and it puts you at higher risk for diabetes and all sorts of metabolic badness. So if, if you want to lose weight and have a, a happy, healthy metabolism, you should eat from only, you know, say, 10 a.m., to 6 p.m., same amount of calories. I, I liked that one. Um, what else was really fascinating, then? Oh, check this out. So I talked to Simon Levin at Princeton, who is an evolutionary biologist and network theorist who used to build models of fish schools. He'd give them, like, some percentage follower and some percentage leader, and then, you know, flip a fish and see how the change propagated to the group. But now what he's doing is applying those same models to how people, groups of people change opinions, which is super cool. You can have, you know, followers and leaders within a networked group of people and all sorts of network connections. And you can flip one person's opinion and how that change propagates through the group. And you can see how, for example, like an aberrant behavior, like skateboarding a dry pool in Venice Beach in the late 70s, was able to flow through the network of the United States and eventually become a social norm. So he looks at social change as schools of the fish. Changing directions, which totally blew me away. I never would have made that connection.
0: I imagine there are a lot of studies in looking at these group dynamic, complex yeah. behaviors of, of groups. Oh, absolutely. You know, this this is
1: such a okay. So there's about fields that are converging on networks right now, um, including some fascinating stuff going on with like social psychology. You know, I always used to be, bad, for example, how Uh, Oh, I talked to these guys who who looked at World Cup soccer teams as networks, with the players being nodes in those networks, all having information that flows through this network. And they found, for example, that the Dutch player um, Arjen Robben, was it, A-R-J-E-N, I think, Robben, um, had hugely high network centrality, so in the final, when they played Spain, Spain marked Aranravan closely and pulled him from the network, and the entire flow of information through the Dutch side was compromised. Now there was not a similar Achilles heel in the Spanish team; they had very balanced centrality. So you know you could cut a head off that hydra, and information. Ie the ball would still flow through that system. There, are, if, if I was to pointing towards like cool oh, stuff to explore right now, I would absolutely point, you know, computationally. And b, no one has just even c- conceived of soccer teams, you know, or subway systems, um, or Wikipedia editing behavior as networks. And so now it's a it's a booming and fascinating field.
0: So probably one, one issue that uh, certainly of interest to everybody is uh, what science can really tell us about the relationships.
1: Sure. So the my go-to source for that um, is a, a, a duo, a dynamic duo of researchers, Eli Finkel and Paul Eastwick, who were at Northwestern but have now gone their separate ways but continue to publish together. Anyway, they've looked at some cool stuff. They looked at... But you know, the, so the paper is titled "The Science of Smooth Operating," and they literally looked at what creates a smooth initial romantic encounter. Um, they they you know sat people down and they had ind- ind- independently rated smooth or not smooth conversations, and then they mined these interactions for what created this smoothness and. There were some expected things that they found, like being other-focused. I mean, that makes sense. If, if, if you're sitting across from someone and blathering about yourself, that's not going to come off very smooth. But the cool thing they found is that there is a, there is a push and pull. You, you have to walk a very fine line in how much you drive a conversation's topics. So specifically what they found is that if your date gives you a topic, like if they pass the conversation over to you and you go a completely different direction, that's not smooth. Or equally unsmooth is if you get the pass and you stay in exactly that same scene. So if you're a wet noodle and you don't do anything to drive the conversation. or if you're over-aggressive and you take over the conversation topics that is not smooth. What is smooth is getting that pass, giving it a slight topic twist, and handing it back. So it's almost like dancing a tango, like you want to push and pull and be responsive and reactive but also drive at times as well. That creates smooth conversations. Now they also looked at some fascinating stuff in speed dating and found, for example, that you want to be the sex that sits instead of the sex that rotates. Because simply by approaching something, you will like it more. So you want to be approached. Like in a regular dating situation, you know, if you're going to meet at a coffee shop or something, you want to show up first and be sitting there so that when your date arrives, they will approach you. And because they approach you, they'll like you more. It's it's fun little mind-punking silliness, but you know what? It it works. So it's cool.
0: <laughs> sort of playing on our our natural instincts there.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well,
0: it's kind of interesting, the conversation tip that they mentioned, uh, similar to this theory in improvisational comedy called Yes Anding. That's the
1: yeah. One. That, you know that's funny I hadn't I hadn't put it together with that game but I think you're absolutely right
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, so besides relationships of course there's love and of course there's money and what about uh, what science tells us about how we manage our finances
1: okay so first of all I talked to Paul Bloom at Yale about how information can substitute for price um, and he looked at it in terms of in terms of wine so when you buy a good bottle of wine, the price is a signal, right? Uh, you know, you go to the shelf in the supermarket in, or the liquor store or whatever, and you look at the top shelf, you look at the middle shelf, and you look at the bottom shelf, and the prices on that top shelf are a signal of quality, right? You, you know, you, you buy a 20 oh, something dollar bottle of wine, and you expect it to be decent. Um, however, he found that Another way to create pleasure from wine or anything is information. People who learned about wine got as much pleasure from uh, an $8 bottle as they would have from, say, like a $12 bottle. And it, it speaks to sort of the essence of things, If you have information about something, you boost your evaluation of its essence and therefore enjoy it more. So, like, if you want to enjoy your vacation, you can spend more money on your vacation or you can learn about where you're going. And there are two different ways to get the same pleasure from the vacation. Um, Also about money, I talked to... Skip Garibaldi at Emory about how to get a positive expected rate of return on your lottery dollar. Um, he said that by picking unpopular numbers in unpopular lotteries, you can actually expect to win back more than the dollar you put down. Yeah, this one gets a little of technical. You might need to – if you just Google up my name and Garibaldi, you'll get a good description of that. But unpopular numbers make the pot look bigger because you are less likely to split it, if that makes sense. And a lot of times these huge lotteries create rabid ticket sales. Like everybody's buying a ticket, so you're going to end up splitting the pot. What you want is a state lottery. It's rolled over a bunch of times without creating these rabid ticket sales. And if you find these conditions, unpopular numbers and unpopular lotteries, you can get a positive expected rate of return under lottery dollar.
0: <laughs> so basically, if, if you do win, you get, a, you get a bigger share of the pot.
1: Yeah, exactly. Huh. For the yep. you, want to, you want to stay away from the likelihood of splitting the pot with someone.
0: So with the elections coming up, what do uh, scientists have to say about how elections are run? What, what statistics tell us about who will win? And-
1: okay, there's a couple things. Let's jump back into networks just for a sec. This is cool. So I talked to Michael Kearns at Penners, and he designed these coordination games based on the uh, Hillary-Obama primaries. Where, where Okay, so he took a bunch of undergrads and stuck them in a room and gave them different ways to see each other, which were the network connections, and then he gave them um, red and blue cards. And if everybody could show a blue card um, in the course of a minute, then they would all get paid. You know, And if they could not, or if they, or if they showed a red card, all at the same time, they would get paid. Now, if they couldn't come to agreement in this minute, they didn't get paid, but here's the cool thing. Is he gave them differing payouts. So some people earned more money for agreeing on blue, and some people earned more money for agreeing on red. And what he found is that network connections and not overall number predict success in these coordination games. So you don't need many people if they're extremely connected to drive this sort of public opinion, uh, you might think about the power of super PACs. Um, you might think of the power of the, 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 the Tea Party. But if there are passionate, connected minorities, they can drive public opinion. And I thought that was kind of fascinating. <laughs>
0: Says a lot for grassroots efforts, then.
1: Yeah, grassroots efforts. I think also interesting. I talked to um, Charles Franklin, who is one of the founders of is it pollster.com. I think it's pollster.com. Anyway, he talked to me about polling and the difficulty in removing bias from polling. I mean, obviously you can insert bias into polling in, in a million different ways, and I, I go into a couple of those in the book, but in, if, if a polling firm inserts bias and then gets a fringe result, they are not taken seriously. Like, as a polling firm, you actually have to hit the sweet spot in the results, you know, within and among the results of other polling firms and other, in order to be taken seriously. And to do that, you have to remove the bias from your polls, which is way, way harder than you would think it would be. But what he talked about is in the lead up to the 2008 election, Obama was way behind Hillary in Iowa, but there was only one polling firm doing the polling. Now, as the election, as the primary got closer, a bunch of other polling firms came into the state, and they showed Obama much closer. And the storyline read, you know, Obama gaining speed in Iowa, but it turns out that instead of gaining speed in Iowa it was likely that these new pollsters were just asking questions in different ways, and it made it look as if Obama had this huge groundswell going, and he wrote that storyline all the way to the nomination and and to the presidency. Franklin's hypothesis is that that election was driven by – I don't want to say salty, but somewhat misleading polling results that resulted in a hopeful storyline. I I don't know what's going on this year, but let's keep an eye on some of these polls and the storylines that come from them.
0: Well, uh, you know, to wrap up, you've, you've certainly talked to a lot of knowledgeable people. Uh, is there anything you took out of these discussions and maybe have you become wiser?
1: <laughs> First of all, I'm going to miss these discussions. Uh, you know, I talked to about 130 people in, in six, 130 scientists in about six months. And then, A, it nearly drove me batty because I was having, you know, one fascinating conversation pretty much every weekday. Um, and, and now that I'm not, I, I I really miss it. It's it's a world that I think few people get to punch into. You know, it's, it's a rabbit hole that few people get to dive down. And I, I feel hugely privileged to have had these hundred and thirty or so conversations. It's it it's funny. There, there's types of scientists. I, I started like noticing some patterns as I went along, like uh, computer scientists, they will either respond to your email immediately or not at all. I mean, you know they get it. Um, so social psychologists, they were they were very willing to kind of cough and uh, hypothesize and speculate, but then always wanted to check my written copy to make sure they'd been represented accurately. Um, Mathematicians are funny, So I get on the phone with mathematicians and it was almost like, you know, the first five minutes it was always like, you know, why are you calling and why would you want to talk to a mathematician? But then if I understood anything in those first five minutes, mathematicians would just talk and talk and talk and we could talk for an hour completely fascinatingly. Um, So I don't know. It's, it's, it's rare and unique and, and interesting to have talked to this diverse, broad group of scientists in such a focused period of time. Like, I, don't know, I don't know many people who have gotten to do that, and I am lucky that, that I did.
0: Uh, well, I think we're certainly lucky that you've uh, put it all into book form, uh, the new book, Brain Trust. If you do have a few seconds, uh, we would quickly like to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. Yeah, sure. All right, it's time to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, uh, do they have a brain trust or not? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 like to know if you think they are advised by a brain trust or not, and uh, maybe a little reason why. Send them ready to play the game.
1: I am as ready as I will ever be.
0: Okay, person number one, does she have a brain trust or not? It's the pop star Lady Gaga.
1: She must have some sort of brain trust. She has been consistently uh, dumb like a fox, in my opinion. Um, And either she's a um, cultural savant or she has a brain trust driving the boat. And I, I well, oh boy, what do I bet on that one? I bet on the latter. I bet she's got some good advisors. So I'm going to go get on that brain trust.
0: <laughs> All right, how about number three? It's the uh, golfer Tiger Woods.
1: I'm going to go no brain trust on that one. I think that his um, fall from the top of, of the world was precipitated was was it precipitated off the precipice by impulsivity rather than any brain driven action so i'm i'm going to go no brain trust on that one
0: number uh, 4 it's the physicist stephen hawking
1: stephen hawking doesn't need no brain trust that guy's got it going on himself you know his thoughts okay from from what i've seen some of the most original thinking to come out of cosmology and physics in the last, well, I don't know, what do you want to say? Whether or not you believe that all of his theories are 100% proven, I think you have to admit that they are 100% original. So I'm going to go Stephen Hawking. Hawking is his own brain trust.
0: (laughs) Okay, number four, uh, Oprah Winfrey.
1: That's a good one. I don't know. And let's see how much I'm going to say that Oprah is the most intelligent, beautiful, um, knowing and wise person I I have ever encountered. Um, And if she'd like to look me up, I'd I'd be happy to talk with her on her show about that.
0: All right. Finally, number five, it's uh, Newt Gingrich.
1: Oh, no, don't don't take me there. I may not agree with the Newt on, on many things, but I got to admit that the guy's got some stuff going on upstairs. I'm going to put him in the category of being his own brain trust. Certainly he has people twittering at him from the sidelines and trying to drive him, but I think the Newt probably does most of his own driving. So I'm going to say Newt doesn't necessarily need the trust, and for better or for worse, is his own brain trust.
0: All right. Well, uh, Mr. Sundham, I want to thank you uh, very much for sticking around, playing our game, and again, talking about your book, uh, Brain Trust. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a blast.